tuned into this episode of Pacey Performance Bite Size. So this clip comes from a full episode with Stephen Patterson, that's episode number 426, discussing all things blood flow restriction training. So in this clip, we specifically chat around using BFR for strength gains, not hypertrophy, but strength. So we go into the detail in this clip. But just before we do dive into this episode with Stephen, I want to say a big thanks to Rock Daisy for sponsoring this episode today. So if you're looking for a free solution to be able to collect, analyze, visualize, and present data to coaches, check out AMS Lite from Rock Daisy at rockdaisy.com. So we'll, we've got one, two, five scenarios, and there may be more, I'm sure there is more, but the five that I've come up with for the purpose of this chat that people may be using BFR for. First one is strength, and you've you've detailed there why someone may use it, but we'll, it'd be great to get some example protocols or just from your knowledge of speaking to practitioners all over the world of what people are actually doing here. So is there any particular protocols that people are using to develop strength? And is there any difference between, I'm asking you 15 questions in one here, but like basic stuff between upper body and lower body, how do protocols differ? Be great to get an insight into into that if possible. Yeah, certainly. I think with regards to to strength, and I think you can probably tie the strength and hypertrophy up a little bit, um, because you're sort of getting similar responses. And and again, it's when you apply it, really. So, um, if you're applying it into someone who is deconditioned or someone who's injured, well, then you're going to get um some very good strength adaptations and some very rapid strength adaptations. You know, up to a hundred percent. Um, within a, quite a short period of time. Like that's very dependent on where you're starting from. So if you have someone who's deconditioned, who's weak because of injury, well, of course, you're going to get a higher response than you have. You've got someone who's really well trained. So from a strength perspective, you're getting those adaptations, especially in those deconditioned individuals. Now, if we look at BFR compared to, say, conventional training or low load training on zone, um, especially in injured populations, BFR is more superior from a strength adaptations perspective. When we start to move towards heavy load training and as you get healthy, well, heavy load training is going to give you slightly greater strength adaptations. Okay, and that's because there's more neurological effect because of the load that you're lifting. So if you're healthy and you have no problems, then adding blood flow restriction in for a strength adaptation isn't really seen as a wise thing to do. Just lift heavy instead. And also, yeah. Exactly. And even from a rehab perspective, in my mind, it's a short-term fix to transition back into the heavy load training. Now, what I would do in a rehab setting if I wanted to optimize my strength is I would, whatever limb was injured, I would do that with blood flow restriction. And in the opposite limb, I would use heavy loads. Now, in the short term, you'd have some sort of asymmetry issues, but I don't really care because I'm getting stronger in one limb and the other leg has to catch up. And you're going to get that cross-transfer effect from the heavy load training which is going to give you even greater adaptations than just the BFR on its own. So I think you want to use heavy to your advantage. To But you know, at no stage, in my opinion, should you be using BFR if you're looking to create a strength stimulus, um, unless you're on a deload or some other reasons to, to do that. Um, from an upper lower body perspective, again, pretty similar. There's no, there's no difference in that, that you know, that the science would back that up that both are going to be similar responses and both heavy loads would be better than BFR, which are both be- better than low load. Um, protocol wise, it's pretty standard. Again, the, the 30, 15, 15, 15 is pretty standard across all the resistance exercise protocols. You can go to failure. 
Um, I think you just have to be careful to failure. I've talked earlier about the fatigue that you get with it. If you take yourself to failure every single time, then you're potentially, um, it's all right if it's maybe you and me and we're not training for anything else. But if you're working with athletes and they've got other stimulus that's going on, I think we want to try and keep them as fresh as possible and actually do as little as we can for stimulus um, that's going to give us that adaptation. So just a chance to Stephen, that 30, 15, yep. 15, 15, that's what's the unit's percentage? Um, no, no. So that's 30, 30% of your one repetition yep, max. Okay. Yep. And those are just your repetitions. So 75 repetitions split into four sets with 30 seconds recovery in between. And again, you get a similar response with regards to the, the fa- if you go to failure as well. Um, I think one of, the, one of the big advantages of that repetition scheme is that actually whilst you, you need to test people for the repetition max and so on, that you can do that, and we do that from a research perspective. In the real world, it's not always possible. If you've got someone who's injured, you're not necessarily going to test a one repetition max. Um, but once you do that one set, once you do that one series of exercise, you'll get a pretty good indication pretty you know early on whether or not that's sufficient or not. You know, So if someone's only able to do 30 repetitions, you've loaded a lot far too heavy. If someone's able to get the sort of almost 50 repetitions up to 75 you're in that sort of sweet spot and you can just keep going until they hit 75 reps a couple of times and then start to move load if they do 75 reps and they felt like this was so easy there was nothing to it well then your load's way too low so within one session as a practitioner you'll know exactly what you need to be doing whether you need to upload keep it the same and so on and then from there you can start manipulating it and moving things um through from there so what kind of pressure are we looking at in that 30 15 <coughs> so Again, depending on what the desired outcome is. So um, we standardize our pressures always by limb occlusive pressure or arterial occlusive pressure, which is the minimum pressure required to fully stop all blood flow into the working muscle. And that we classify that as 100%. So if we work between 40 and 80%, we know we're letting blood flow in um, and therefore we're in that sort of safe realm. We find that anything below 40% limb occlusive pressure, we don't really see the adaptations. And anything above 80%, we don't really need. Um, it's too close to 100%, too painful and so on. We don't definitely don't need to fully stop all blood flow. You'll see fatigue happen quickly and you don't do enough repetitions to create stimulus. So um, upper body, you can probably get away with about 40 to 50% of your um, limb occlusive pressure. I would always go around 50%, um, just mainly because we've done some work a while ago where if you change your body position, Whenever you're measuring your limb occlusive pressure, obviously that changes um, your limb occlusive pressure outright. So if you're lying down, seated, standing, obviously that's going to have an influence. And you can imagine if you lie down and do your limb occlusive pressure, and say you pick 40%, and then you stand up, well, actually, now you're below 40% whenever you're doing the exercise. So I always try to earn a side of caution of 50%, I think would be much better for the upper body, so you don't drop under. And for the lower body, you're probably closer towards 60 to 80% of your limb occlusive pressure seems to be more effective just because the muscles are bigger and seems to, to need that more stimulus in order to, to create it. There is some evidence at the lower end, but I think 60 to 80 is generally where we see to, seem to sit with regards to our recommendations and what people are doing. So that limb occlusive pressure, does that, is, that, is there a certain variation between populations or is that pretty okay? Yeah, there will be. So it depends. On, the biggest thing is going to depend on is the size of your limb. So um, what limb occlusive pressure does, it allows you to standardize across, say, for example, different people, different equipment even, um, and so on. So um, your limb occlusive pressure, you know, if I give you an arbitrary pressure of 150 millimeters of mercury, well, for you, that may be 
50% of your limbic luteal period, but with me it might be 30. And all of a sudden, I'm not getting an effective dose at that, even at that pressure. So it allows us to standardize, um, and that's probably the key thing with it. And actually, it's allowed us to standardize even the way we do the research and the way we apply it now in, in practice, because certainly back when I first started and when we were doing all this, that we weren't actually doing that. You know, we weren't, we were just picking arbitrary numbers and we were getting lucky if we got a result or not. Because there's two things influence it. The size of the limb influences your limbic luteal pressure and the size of the cuff, the width of the cuff. So the wider the cuff, the lower the limbic luteal pressure. Um, the thinner the cuff, it's going to be much higher. Um, but there's a balance, obviously. You don't want it too wide, which it restricts your exercise. So you have to find that balance and act between the two to allow you to perform whatever tasks it is you're trying to do. Um, obviously, there are loads of companies in the market and they're all they're designing things which are allowing you to do that. Um, but we find normally sort of 10, 12 centimeter cuffs are probably the, the sweet spot in that regard. That's not a, you know, 100%, but that's just worded. We're, we just seem to get that enough room to sort of do the exercise, but also enough um, low enough pressure. My, my argument always is we want to have as low a pressure as we possibly can have in order to create the adaptation. We're not looking to just outcompete each other and just go, well, hold on, let's keep putting pressure up. We don't need to do that. You want to get as low as possible to create the stimulus. So in terms of the cuffs themselves, that does that differ between lower body and upper body? Are you Can you... Or should you be having a wider cuff for lower and narrow cuff for upper, for example? Yeah, generally you tend to see, again, it depends on the company and who's putting it together and so on. There are different width cuffs for some devices and some devices are just the same size cuff depending on what you do. Some cuffs are straight, you know, just a, a straight cuff, which means, um, and then some are contoured, so some fit the limb. You know, the, the conical shapes, so they're actually fit the limb. And obviously, you can imagine those ones obviously then reduce your limb occlusive pressure because they fit more snug and they then therefore reduce all the um, any weight, sort of, I guess, waste. And um, if you have a straight cuff, it's not going to fit perfectly round an arm or a leg, so therefore, it means that there's a little bit more waste in the regards to the pressure, it has to be slightly higher to fully restrict that blood flow. Um, so, yeah, it really depends on who the, the company is and, and what they're using. And that will dictate whether or not there's a different size cuff. Some of the more expensive companies and devices, they have they give you different options of different sizes. Um, obviously, the lower, cheaper versions have just got one cuff. But you can obviously buy different size cuffs and, and pump them up and so on. So those um, are all in play, I guess. And positioning of the cuff, obviously that's going to be important. Can you give the detail of how people could navigate that? Yeah, look, it, it's probably really simple in, in most sense that you're basically looking to put it as high up the limb as you possibly can, right? And there, there's two main reasons. Well, the main reason for that is that um, there's more, I guess, fat and muscle mass at the very top of the arm or top of the leg. And actually, we're staying away from nerves. As You know, if you go lower down the leg and you've seen in the past, nobody's doing it anymore, thank goodness, but people used to put it just below the knee and there's nerves there which can cause real serious damage. Um, and you want to, you know, there's no difference from restricting down there and it's up to the top, apart from it's safer. So actually keeping it at the very top is the is the ideal way to do it. That obviously means you've got a slightly higher limit clues of pressure, but it's going to be there when you're doing the exercise. So it's not a it's not a major thing. And actually, it's probably easier to do that. You know, you can imagine if you're trying to contract your muscle and the cuff's right in the middle of the muscle belly, that's not going to be useful. Um, so we want to have it as high up as possible to sort of stop that happening. 
Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Pacey Performance Bite Size. So this clip came from episode number 426 with Stephen Patterson, and you can find that on iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. Big thanks to Rock Daisy for sponsoring this episode today, and I'll chat to you next time.